Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The city of Vancouver has a progressive plan to address its crisis of drug overdoses, decriminalizing all drugs. The aim is to reduce the amount of the stuff on the street that's spiked. We ask how likely that is to work and how the plan might go wrong. And we take a look at Africa's click languages, in which a vocal click forms a core part of communication. Most have died out altogether, but there's a hopeful bid to save one of them that has just two native speakers left. First up, though. Today marks the 70th anniversary of the United Nations Refugee Convention, a landmark treaty that established the obligations that countries have to people fleeing persecution. A core principle is non-refoulement, that migrants should not be returned to a country where they face serious threat of persecution. But in recent years, the Refugee Convention has become perhaps the least popular treaty in the rich world. In 2015, millions of asylum seekers, many fleeing the civil war in Syria, tried to reach Europe in any way they could. Men, women and children. The beaches covered in life jackets and the remains of rubber boats. Relentless waves of people washing up on the shores of Greece. News reports were flooded with images of people making a desperate and often deadly journey. Arriving at a gateway to Europe, boats packed with migrants and refugees continue to land on the shores of the Greek island of Lesbos. Boats packed with migrants and refugees. The law makes a sharp distinction between the two, the difference between seeking shelter and simply seeking a better life. That's a hugely politicized question in America, where President Joe Biden faced a slow burn crisis from his first days in office. Yesterday, the Biden administration said it would speed up its work through the backlog of asylum claims, as well as its work deporting those who don't qualify. And in Britain, where in the past week record numbers of migrants attempted to make the crossing from France, the Home Secretary spoke of a patience that is thinning. Enough of a failed asylum system that costs the taxpayer over a billion pounds a year. Enough of dinghies arriving illegally on our shores, directed by organized crime gangs. Seventy years after the treaty's founding, the world is creating more and more refugees, even as fewer and fewer governments have the appetite to protect them. The Refugee Convention basically sets out what countries have to do if people come to them when they have what the convention calls a well-founded fear of persecution. Brooke Unger writes about migration for The Economist. And the, the most important obligation it lays on states is not to return them to the danger from which they've fled. And how did this treaty emerge initially? 
The convention came in the aftermath of the Second World War. The plight of Europe's refugee millions, exiled by war or by racial and religious persecution. When you had millions of people displaced by war and by the crimes of the Nazis and, and to some extent of Stalin as well. And the original treaty, which was adopted in 1951, applied only to people who'd been displaced within Europe before that date. And it wasn't until 1967 that it was kind of universalized and made to apply to the future as well as the past. What's happened since 1951 is there have been quite a number of refugee crises since then, and they seem to be kind of growing in number and intensity. Right now, there's something like 80 million people who have been forcibly displaced across the globe. Most of those people have actually been forcibly displaced within their countries, so they don't qualify as refugees. And as the number of refugees has risen, as the drivers have multiplied, how does that affect honoring what the treaty obliges countries to do? Part of the challenge that governments trying to abide by the treaty and courts trying to interpret the treaty, part of the challenge that they face is that a lot of people on the move are economic migrants. And, you know, when people wind up on the beaches of Italy or they come to the southern borders of the United States, some of those people are genuinely fleeing persecution and some of those people are very understandably looking for a better life. And so countries are faced with this rather difficult obligation to kind of winnow out who's a genuine refugee and who, who maybe wants to bring up his or her children in a safer, more prosperous country. You mentioned America's southern border, which has obviously been a real flashpoint for, for immigration questions. How has policy changed there after the Trump administration? Well, I mean, Trump came in on a very anti-immigrant platform with a very anti-immigrant message. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. They have violently overrun the Mexican border. And he adopted a number of policies that try to keep people out. I mean, most infamously, he separated parents from their children. In contravention of earlier practice, he told people who wanted to come in and claim asylum in the United States to wait in Mexico for their court dates to have their hearings. Then when COVID came along, they adopted something called Title 42, supposedly as a public health measure, which basically allowed the border guards to summarily expel people who are crossing the border for public health reasons. Biden has come in with a different attitude. We're going to work to undo the moral and national shame of the previous administration that literally, not figuratively, ripped children from the arms of their families, their mothers and fathers at the border. But he has not entirely rolled back Trump's policies. I mean, he's softened them to some extent. Uh, the people who were part of the Remain in Mexico program are now being allowed to come into the United States for their hearings. Title 42 is still in force, but it's not being applied to uh, unaccompanied children. And what about policies in Europe where this treaty was initially founded? How are things there now? Well, I mean, I'd say there's been a backlash to the Refugee Convention. Europe had a big surge of asylum seekers in 2015, largely as a result of the uh, war in Syria, but not only that, others came as well. And there was a very strong political reaction to that in Europe. One of the reasons that you're not seeing large numbers of refugees and asylum seekers coming to European shores at the moment is because of the so-called EU-Turkey statement, which was basically a deal signed in 2016 between the European Union and Turkey, whereby in exchange for something like 6 billion euros in aid, Turkey agreed to act to prevent irregular migrants from arriving in Europe. And you've seen 
since that agreement, a pretty dramatic decline in the number of people attempting to get across from Turkey to the Greek islands. So, for example, our, our Turkey correspondent, Piotr Zalewski, recently met a man and his pregnant wife, a Somali couple, who were trying to reach Greece from Turkey. They spent something like three hours in a rubber dinghy that was leaking air in the, in the Aegean and were subsequently picked up by the Turkish Coast Guard and sent back to Turkey. Are you going to try again? No. No. no, no, no. And not, a, not at all. Not at all. Yes. This is the first time you've tried. Yes. So after that experience, they've said that they're not going to try again to get to Greece and they're hoping to make lives for themselves in Turkey. But in a sense, it sounds as if the European Union is is kind of passing the buck to its neighbors to stop the problem coming to its shores. I mean, does that work? Is that fair? I mean, I think it's important to notice that 86% of refugees are in developing countries. So most are not coming to Europe or the United States. But given the resistance to accepting large numbers of refugees, there are some scholars some advocates of refugee rights who think that the deal like the one made between the EU and Turkey may actually provide some kind of way forward for the way rich countries deal with refugees. Now, that comes with a huge number of caveats. But there are people who think that there may be ways of humanizing and adapting that agreement in ways that work both for refugees and for the countries that host them. But as you say, the world has changed a lot since the Refugee Convention was first adopted. I mean, given the reluctance of many countries here, the the difficulties in determining the status of of migrants and refugees, is the treaty itself fit for purpose? Could it be repurposed? I don't think the treaty can be repurposed. I mean, the treaty obviously does not cover every problem that's related to forced migration or the issue of internal displacement. But, you know, it's extremely unlikely that another international treaty will be negotiated This does give some protection to people who are fleeing genuine threats because of who they are. But to deal with the issue of refugees, there has to be you thinking about the kind of resources that the rich world provides to the poorer countries who host most refugees. Those countries have to think harder about how to better incorporate refugees into their societies and into their economies and to see them as being, you know, assets and not simply as burdens. And, you know, ultimately, the rich world can't dodge its responsibility to take some significant number of those people and resettle them in their countries as well. Thank you very much for joining us, Brooke. Thank you, Jason. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We are giving away more drugs in these boxes are more drugs than these limits. Earlier this month, activists in Vancouver distributed free heroin, methamphetamine, and cocaine outside a police station. We are still breaking the law because you know what? The law isn't helping us. We help us. Yeah! 
Campaigners were joined by Jean Swanson, a city councillor. Almost six people a day are dying from poison drugs. All of the public health folks, everyone who knows anything about drugs, they say we need a safe supply. Long known as a place willing to experiment with drug policy, the Canadian city has a new plan to help it tackle a rise in overdoses, which killed more people last year than COVID-19 did. In May, it submitted a proposal to be exempted from Canada's federal drug laws, decriminalizing possession up to defined personal limits. The government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to rule on the proposal within weeks. So... The Vancouver model, as it's become known, would decriminalize possession of virtually all drugs up to defined personal limits. That's two grams of heroin, three of cocaine, uh, ten rocks of crack, and so on. And the rationale is that drug prohibition, according to the proposal, prevents addicts from seeking treatment and criminal records make it more difficult for them to recover their life and livelihood by getting a job, for example. Sam Colbert writes about Canada for The Economist. And it's kind of an all-or-nothing approach with these drugs. It's not just some of the major fatality culprits that are listed. It's also party drugs like LSD and MDMA. The idea is that if you only decriminalize certain drugs, you risk people who use those less harmful ones switching to those more harmful ones. And it's that kind of all-and-sundry approach that's completely new here? There is some precedent for decriminalization in other places in the world. In Portugal, for example, uh, Oregon and America. The big difference is most of those other places still impose some kind of penalty, whether it's the drugs are confiscated or a fine is issued. The Vancouver model would propose no penalty whatsoever. And Vancouver already had a reputation for being somewhat liberal on on drugs matters, right? Yeah, that's right. Vancouver uh, has had both a drug problem for decades and a decades-long reputation for being progressive on drug policy. Uh, The thing about the population here in Vancouver is that you lose elections if you don't have progressive drug policy, um, and so it's different than many other cities. So, I spoke to the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart. He's been behind this proposal to the Canadian government. And he drew a link between any form of prohibition in Vancouver, whether that's jail time uh, or even confiscation of drugs, and the risk from drug overdose deaths. Um, And so if you're uh, somebody that's working survival sex work, for example, and you have a habit that you have to feed every day, if the police seize your drugs, that puts you into a much more precarious situation where you're taking higher risk uh, work activities or you're buying from dealers that you don't know, and that's where you can get the fentanyl problem and, uh, you know, is, is a, a higher risk there. But being completely hands-off in this way surely comes with its own risks. Yeah, and the Vancouver proposal is certainly aware of those risks. Um, the, the submission tries to preempt some of them. Um, it points out that people say this could increase substance abuse in Vancouver, Um, It could make Vancouver a kind of regional hub for drug users who know they won't be prosecuted there. Um, It could make public spaces more dangerous. But interestingly, the city has also gotten criticism from the other side. Some drug user advocacy groups in Vancouver have submitted letters in opposition to this plan to the federal government, along with the proposal, because they feel the 
possession limits listed are too low. I spoke to one of those advocates, his name is Garth Mullins, and he felt that police had too much influence in the city's process, and therefore the drug limits don't reflect reality. When I was a heroin user, daily heroin user, my habit was often bigger than what you were allowed to possess. And then sometimes I was out scoring for me and my ex-girlfriend. So like, you know, how can I be involved in campaigning for something that wouldn't even decriminalize me? I asked Vancouver's mayor about this, and he said to me, look, if this thing has any chance of getting accepted by the federal government, then we need to show them that the police are on side. And so on that question of it being accepted by the federal government, I mean, what chance? Yeah, that's the big question. Uh, Justin Trudeau has so far stopped short of supporting decriminalization when he's been asked about it. I think there's general acceptance across the parties at the federal level in Canada of this idea that prosecuting people who have addiction issues is not the way to go. Whether this particular idea gets accepted is another matter. Canada is not like America, where drug laws are state by state. Drug laws in Canada are federal. That means if Trudeau grants Vancouver this exemption, he could have cities across Canada looking for exemptions of their own. But Vancouver's mayor is very optimistic. He says he's hoping for a government decision within weeks. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with the prime minister directly about this who was sold on safe supply as a good uh, measure, less so on the decrim. However, this is the prime minister that legalized cannabis, and so I think there's a willingness to experiment uh, with new approaches that will save lives. Others aren't so optimistic. This would be a big political gamble for Trudeau, potentially, in what is likely to be an election year in Canada. And so what's your view on the the effect that it would have? Would, would it cut deaths? Would it pose other dangers to the city? Does it, does it go far enough if it's going to go that far at all? If the goal is to cut down on drug deaths, pretty well everyone I spoke to acknowledged that this measure alone isn't going to make that much of a difference. It might be the case that drug users won't be prosecuted for consuming drugs, but those street drugs are going to continue to be spiked with fentanyl. British Columbia recently announced support for what it calls a safer supply program. That's where alternative opioids are given to drug users to divert them away from that tainted street supply. But those programs are still quite limited. And unless Vancouver can somehow clean up the toxic drug supply on the streets and widely offer alternatives to people, then people are going to keep dying, whether or not drug possession is a crime. Thanks very much for your time, Sam. Thank you, Jason. So-called click languages, in which a click sound made with the mouth acts as a kind of consonant, are only found in Africa and are very rare. Soon, though, they might be even rarer. Mu is a language that belongs to the San. Neil McQuillan writes for The Economist. The San are one of the earliest groups of humans. They were originally a hunter-gatherer group whose territory was southern Africa. And at one point, there would have been hundreds of click languages. But Ngu is now one of a handful of remaining ones. When I started hearing about Ngu, there were three or four remaining speakers. Now, there's just one left. Her name is Katrina Esau. 
And so in the course of looking into this, have you learned to do all the clicks? No, not at all. But when I first heard about Mu, I came across the name of Sheena Shah, who, along with her colleague, they're kind of the world experts on the click languages of this region. And I got in touch with Sheena, and she was incredibly enthusiastic about teaching me about these languages. Mu is pronounced with a dental click consonant. In fact, a nasodental click consonant. Dental click consonants are articulated with the tip of the tongue against the alveolar ridge or the upper teeth. If you wanted to say hello in ng, you'd say konkia. If you then wanted to ask how someone's doing, you'd say takie kaba. And then to respond and say that you're doing fine, you'd say na kaba. Sheena Shah has come in and over the time that she spent with Katrina Asao and the community, she's worked out very carefully how you produce these clicks with the mouth and how to differentiate one from the other. Mu has 45 click consonants. With the dental click type, you have the word ngkyu, meaning nose. With the alveolar click type, you have the word kai, meaning springbok. With the lateral click type, you have the word kaike, meaning milk. One of the most remarkable of the clicks is known as the kiss click. If you wanted to say the word cat in ng, you'd say mwa. And this has a nasal bilabial click consonant. To put it in a sentence now, if you wanted to say the cat is old in ng, you'd say mwa ke kuria. And you say there is only one native speaker of this language left. Why is that? Why don't the younger generation speak it? The younger generation don't speak ng because... Over the years, the San people were persecuted, they went into hiding, they were sort of scattered. And the original speakers of Mu and other click languages started speaking Afrikaans. And the white bosses forbade them from speaking Mu. And so it's only been in recent years that there's been an interest in San identity. And in the 1980s, a linguist came across a speaker of Mu and he encouraged her to make a radio appeal for other speakers to come forward. And a few did. And that's how this very gradual resurgence of Mu has taken place. But now the job is essentially to, to rescue the language from just one speaker. Yeah, that's right. So Katrina Rosau is 88 now. And she has dedicated her remaining years to teaching Mu to her community. A classroom was built next to her house with the teaching materials that Sheena Shah and her team have helped produce. There are about 25 to 40 children who attend afternoon schools, and it's really lovely to hear the children on the streets singing or playing games. So it's a language which um, they take a lot of pride in, which was, of course, not the case in the apartheid years. Whether or not it's going to catch on and ever be used again in daily life is, is to be seen. It may not, and if it doesn't, people probably won't make a great fuss about it. I just think that's terribly sad. Neil, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 